Well, this Vasa, we're very honored to have Panajan Kemisiri sing with us. Uh, Panajan has been a monk in this tradition for 33 years. Uh, he started at Egypt. He started at Amarvati. He started at Amarvati. He was the first Panagarika ordained at Amarvati Monastery in England. Uh, two years later, became a fully ordained bhikkhu at Chidhurst. He's been a monk uh, in, he spent a few years in Burma and Thailand, and later became abbot of Dhammapala Monastery in Switzerland for several years, many years, and he's recently retired from being abbot, and now travels around to uh, monasteries like the one in Canada, and we're happy to have him here. So, welcome everyone this afternoon, um, a period of meditation and reflection, contemplation, and um, I hear that uh, quite a number of you are uh, at the monastery for the first time. Maybe you're the first time ever at a Buddhist place, is that right? So, and also I would actually be interested to know who's completely new to meditation, has never done this before. Are there any, is anyone here? Only one person? Okay, and the others are, have some experience, maybe not the particular meditation which uh, is on offer within our tradition, I can assume. Yeah? So many different um, forms of meditation, of course, available nowadays. Yeah? Sometimes it can be downright confusing. If you go out there, it's like a big supermarket, meditation supermarket, you know, with meditation apps and whatnot. So, what you know, which one is the right one, which is a good one, which is a trustworthy one, of course, those kind of questions uh, can come up. Now, of course, I can only introduce you to, even uh, within the scope of meditations which we have available, to a particular limited um, form, but I think I tried, what I tried to do is to maybe give you a gist and kind of something which uh, could be potentially be very helpful in your life, directly applicable, and not actually dependent on this special situation here in, in the monastery. This, of course, is I always like to call it a laboratory. You know, where one can really um, deepen one's uh, meditation practice. One has a lot of supportive conditions. It's quiet here. Nature is all around us, which is a very a supportive resource for any meditator. But, uh, of course, at the end of the day, you want to have something, especially you folks who are living in um, big cities and so forth, you want to have something which you can also apply in your home environment. Otherwise, what's the point? Huh? And, of course, um, Buddhist meditation is also not just a, a kind of spiritual tranquilizer, we're not meditating in order just to be kind of calm and relaxed and so forth, but uh, we are mainly meditating in order to understand ourselves. And this can go to many, many levels. It can go to a kind of level where we, where we find out eventually who we really are, who we are beyond or besides the daily experiences which you make 
besides the feelings and emotions, the thoughts and memories and perceptions, the projections we have and so forth. And that maybe we can get in touch with something which is beyond all that. A very still point in us, a still place in us, where all these things come to an end and we can rest in something, something we call it, in a, in a state of pure awareness, in a place of pure awareness, completely connected uh, with our heart, but not being tossed around by appearances, by external appearances, of course, but also internal appearances, so both sides um, come into play. But uh, to be able to do that, of course, one has to make some preparatory work, so to speak. And usually what we say is a very helpful preparation for looking precisely and deeply into one's own uh, experience, personal experience, is that we have established at least a sense of calm, a kind of sense of stillness in our mental, even what even say mind-body continuum, maybe these processes we, which we continuously experience and in daily life this can be sometimes very, very fast moving, one thought chasing the other, one memory coming after the other and so forth, or we get um, emotionally worked up about something which happens in our families or in the work sphere. And then we give commentaries to that, and, um, trying to find an answer on the mere level of thoughts or thinking. And very often we find, even if we're very skilled maybe in analyzing um, our own person, our own personality, we very often find that this always seems to fall short, at least to some extent. We don't seem to really get to the core of it. Yes, we can analyze, and of course nowadays also there is a lot of help available if we're really having some massive uh, psychological problems. We can go and find someone who can help us, assist us in a therapeutical way. But then uh, in this context, in looking at the Buddhist teaching body, we even go beyond that. We're not just here to analyzing ourselves and dissecting ourselves into different compartments and different little entities which make up our personalities. But we want to see what is what is there anything we can at least get a glimpse of it, what is beyond that, beyond the continuous movement on the screen or could say in the screen. So and I think I don't want to talk too long initially, so I think we should maybe start with a period of meditation and to some to some extent you could connect to that what i was uh, recommending of course you cannot expect too much in terms of results on one um, short meditation period but maybe you can get a glimpse of it or a taste for it the potential which lies in in meditation and attending to the mind, or the body-mind, I should say, in a different way than we normally do in daily life. And we all know that we are creatures of habit. We have all, all our particular uh, individuality, character, personality, 
and they're equipped with all sorts of habits. After they're multifaceted, we are very different in our in ways our personalities are. And I would I would say there are not two people exactly the same in this world, even twins, one-eyed twins. <laughs> they're still different. Different how they experience themselves and the world. And so this is our uh, playing field, so to speak, our personal experience. This is what we're working with. Well, I say playing because some people don't like to, the term work all the time. Um, it's a very popular in Buddhism, so what you, you work with your mind, you work with the things you experience, but maybe you, it brings you to a more lighter place in yourself, and I say play with it, not take it so um, desperately serious, but see it more as an experiment, the way we investigate our experience. This is actually what it comes to when we add additional elements to the kind of meditation we have been doing, which is directed towards calm, so a sense of relaxation, centeredness, yeah, being present, simply being content with a simple activity of breathing. But then even if, if we should get very, very calm, and it can get it can get really nice, of course. It can get completely absorbed into the object of your meditation. And that, of course, feels very good. But this is not an end in itself. We're not doing um, such a form of meditation to just get then stuck in a kind of wonderful state. But this is more a resource. For, see it more as a resource for yourself to then actually uh, look at yourself, investigate, contemplate your own experience. Because that's where then um, the recommendations which are leading further than just being experiencing a wonderful state are, are directing us towards, to investigate. And why investigate? Well, we investigate because we are normally in our everyday life, always coming up against our limitations. We feel inner pressure, we feel emotional upsurges, we feel compulsive ways of thinking and feeling also sometimes, so forth. And, and these uh, particular dynamics can be very unpleasant. They can really oppress us and cause even something which we call in very plainly in Buddhist power, suffering. We can experience the pressure of dukkha, as we call it in, in the Pali language, the Buddhist language, or suffering is one word of translating this word dukkha. You could also say maybe wider or deeper unsatisfactoriness. And the point is, the Buddha made when he spoke about the experience of dukkha, is that when we get caught up and limited by our conditioned mind, the way we are conditioned as people, as personalities, and so forth. Um, when we get stuck in those perceptions, then we inevitably we will experience dukkha, we will experience discontent. And this is nothing to do with the physical experience, you know, this, this of course, one form of dukkha, you could say, is uh, 
on the area of the body. This, of course, is for anybody. A wise person has the pain in the body, as an unwise person has pain in the body. And, and this goes on to the, our last day here on planet Earth. You have to come to terms with that, with the physical aspect of it. But the difference in a wise person lies in the way he or she relates to Dukkha. There can be the physical Dukkha, of course, how we relate to that. This is also, of course, an important area. And some people find it absolutely intolerable to experience pain, even though from time to time, at the very least, uh, we have to witness it. Even young people, even children, you know, they have to go to the dentist or the toothache or some other malady. And, uh, but then, the more the core, the core teachings, maybe one could say, is where uh, we're pointing at how we create dukkha, suffering, pain, unsatisfactoriness with our own inner commentary. So, in other words, how we evaluate our experience, what we do when we um, simply experience what we experience. And as I was saying in the instruction, if we can just let things be, in the same way as we can let the, the quality of the breath be as it is, we don't want to change it, if we can leave all the um, thoughts and feelings, the mental formations, emotions and so forth, let them be as they are, there's no problem, isn't it? We see them just as what they are, they are conditioned stuff. Conditioned means they have been created, we have been very co-creative in creating the conditions we experience now. We also have been exposed to uh, conditioners, you could say. People have conditioned us, our parents were the first usually, when they were little children, babies, and teachers and peers and mates and so forth, university professors or whatnot. Everyone we come in into closer contact with, they have, a, they have an influence on us and we can condition us in some way. And of course the imprint in the very early on in our life is the strongest. And the parents, of course, uh, usually they try their best in a loving way to bring us up and give us the best starting conditions for life so that we will be um, successful in life. Or maybe the parents would say that we become happy. I think it's better if the parents would say, I, can say, I just want you to be happy rather than I want you to be successful. So that's already uh, quite a strong condition. Eh? You say, expect from your children they should be successful. Very often it's a projection maybe of, of your own unachieved goals in life. You project it on that on, on projected on them that they should be successful. Because you didn't become a university professor that they should become. But it doesn't necessarily mean that university professors are happy people. In fact they can they can be quite unhappy. I've met some. Um, so it's not a way it's not uh, the way to achieve happiness just merely by having some elevated position, maybe in society, uh, have special skills or special knowledge about all sorts of things. But happiness relates very much to how we can be with ourselves, how we accept ourselves, the attitude we have ourselves, 
In one of the very important core teachings, and we speak about the factors which lead us on the way to awakening, is called the right orientation, to have the right orientation, sometimes also called the right intention in life, how we orient ourselves, how we direct ourselves inwardly when we move about our daily business, wherever it is, if it's in a very simple job profession or in a very kind of prestigious, if we're living alone as a single person or we have a family with 10 children, doesn't matter. But this orientation, sometimes called right orientation, very important. And there's usually there's three things um, embedded within that. The one is that we come from an intention of benevolence, of kindness. So we establish in our hearts, at least intentionally, in our attitude on kindness. We want to go out into the world, but before we go out in the world, actually, we want to be kind to ourselves. This seems almost like, uh, you know, truism. But actually, when you when you look around or you ask around, you know, many people actually find that more challenging than to be kind with someone else, to be kind with themselves, to have a genuine sense of kindness uh, towards themselves. I don't even say love. It might be too strong in many people's ears, but kind, we can be kind. We can be kind to ourselves. And if we haven't discovered that we can do that, maybe we can do it as an experiment. Whenever we, now the best way to do is, whenever we find that we have an unkind thought arising or kind of a self-critical thought, the famous inner tyrant arises in our minds, then we can know. I don't have to listen to that. I've heard this so many times. This, this little voice putting on, which puts ourselves down. I says, oh, you, you can do what you want. You will never get there. You know, <laughs> you don't, you don't have it when it takes. But any other dismissive comments or supercritical comments, when we hear them, don't buy into that. And just to refrain from that, or is already an act of kindness. Sometimes people think when we're speaking about kindness in Buddhism, it should be some super-duper overwhelming loving feeling. No, it's not what it's asked for. How can you produce that? You can't press a button. Self-love here, there, or somewhere up in the chest, and it works? No. But what we can do is we can, we can try to not uh, go into, a, first of all, to react to an not so nice thought in ourselves, and then also we can not react with aversion towards it. We simply acknowledge it. Oh, this is this is how it is. There seems to be a tendency I have to always see everything I do, no matter where, no matter what, with a very critical, super critical eye. And always the tendency to, you're not good enough. You could, you should be doing better. Or whatever is your particular. I mean, I know this one. <laughs> but maybe your voice sounds a little bit different than mine. But you know, put your voice in the blanks. There. What is it? Was it the kind of critical, that super hypercritical faculty telling you quite regularly? Maybe not all the time, but regularly. And how do you relate to this? 
try to you try to ignore it and deny it. Is it there? Meditated away, you know, or find some kind of strategy to overcome this. What can you just say? You just simply acknowledge. Oh, this is this is really unkind, and I don't want to be like that. So I don't start to hate this. I don't start to hate this unpleasant tendency I might discover in myself because that would be double, huh? double amount of negativity. In other words. Not adding with aversion and still and simply staying kind in one's own heart. That's enough. And the other additional quality which actually goes hand in hand with it is compassion. And that, that of course applies to the aspects and experiences we have which are uh, unpleasant and downright suffering, where we really feel uh, we're having a hard time, so or even in connection to what I've just said, you know, whenever you experience negative voices and you become victims of these negative voices, in, in, in truth, we are suffering right then and there. Because mm-hmm. so that is suffering. If you, if, you turn, if you take this voice 100%, you identify with it, you call it me, this is who I am, you know, I'm such a hopeless case, or um, whatever your particular voice says, uh, then in that particular moment we are suffering. So to have compassion, and compassion actually, if we maybe take it a little bit more literally, means to feel with. We are very closely attending and feeling with our own experience. In whatever form of suffering manifests, in whatever way, it could be physical, it could be mental to compulsive thinking, it could be emotional through something upsurge, of you know anger or jealousy or uh, hatred even uh, we can see this is suffering and rather than going into kind of panic a panic attack trying to squash it out or block it out we can have the impression this is suffering and when i can say that this is suffering automatically there's also wisdom there right because we've acknowledged it we've seen it and that's a little there's the little uh, small miracle of mindfulness, you could say. Whatever we're mindful of, whatever we can see clearly with sati, we're not a victim of. Because that which sees the particular conundrum is larger, is bigger than that which tends to overtake ourselves if we let our habits play themselves out regularly. So that's why, again, also, of course, we emphasize this practice of awareness and mindfulness so that we can see and attend to things as best as we can, to our best abilities, acknowledge when there's something which is oppressing us, and then uh, relate to it with kindness and with compassion rather than impulsivity, just action on impulse. The ignorant mind cannot do anything else, it can just act on impulse. Habit, habit tendency, and uh, and if it gets too much, maybe a little later in the year, if this, these habits really solidify in our psyche, then uh, we might resort to you know kind of certain substances or to block this out, to block the pain out, huh? 
the pain of a negative mind can then be very inviting to have a few drinks or take drugs or have any other kind of uh, unskillful escape or just distracting oneself. You know, uh, watching distracting things all day just with not having to attend to one's own personal experience. A lot of people do that. Maybe not in that extreme way as I'm uh, describing here, but uh, the willingness to attend to one's own experience with these attitudes of kindness and compassion is not very terribly widespread. It needs more of us to do this, actually. Because each and every one of us who does that, and attends that way, of course also puts something into the bigger pot, you could say. The collective attitude we have um, towards these phenomena. The collective experience of suffering as a humanity in this world where we can see, well, if you look around, you can see there's so much, so many uh, horrible things happening. And the same way, this also calls us, calls for us to, to uh, be there with our compassion. How this then expresses itself, or if it expresses itself through actual physical action, we do something and get actively involved in a particular area of society, so with another story. But of course, it's not excluded from it. The very first, the very first step, the primary step, is always: How does it feel here? How do I respond? How do I respond rather than react to that which is difficult to see, difficult to witness, difficult to accept, even in the first place? And then, when we're speaking about right orientation, I have another one, which. Uh, in the Buddhist language, it's called Nikama. Nikama, it has also different nuances of translation. One is actually renunciation, refers to monastic life, but here, in this orientation, refers to, to renouncing any impulses we might experience which are based on selfishness, egotism, or even on a deeper level, or any sense of self. Any impulses which come from that place in ourselves, we renounce. So how do we do that? Well, it sounds like an impossibility, because again we're dealing with these uh, with these uh, deeply rooted uh, habit, mental, emotional habits we're having. How can you just renounce them by an act of will? Is that possible? Well, I, should, I would suggest, no, certainly not. It's not possible. You cannot do that like that. That seems to be uh, a very short-term solution. Sometimes it might be necessary if it's very extreme. If somebody makes you angry and you feel a very strong impulse to punch that person on the nose, it's actually a good thing to suppress it. Suppress the impulse and not do it, let alone killing the person. But we're not, of course, concerned with such extremes. We're more concerned of how the egoic mind plays itself out and almost uh, takes possession of us and directs us in a way which, in the end, is not very wholesome, not very beneficial for us. And of course, then we have to look what is beneficial for us. What are the 
the impressions, impressions in the heart which are experienced, which are beneficial. And whenever, and we can find out usually quite quickly, whenever I'm, I'm having these, these three things established, if there's kindness and there's compassion, and if I'm not coming from an um, extreme sense of self, of selfishness, then usually my experience is, or my state of being is quite a happy one. I'm not, I'm not tormented um, by these uh, what we call impurities of the mind, these, these three basic toxins which every human being is haunted with, which is greed, hatred, and delusion. Those are the, the three, the spokes of the wheel, which we say, which keeps us caught in our egoic identity, in our selfishness, in the egocentricity. It's greed, hatred, delusion. And all its derivatives, all its various forms of expression, which of course there are myriad things which we could enumerate here. And usually, of course, these things manifest within something which we call a self, or a me, or a person, a personality. And of course, on the conventionally speaking, we all have a personality. As I said initially, we're all very different even as personalities, quite unique. But we all experience greed, hatred, and delusion, don't we? We all have that. In, uh, as our experience in one, at least mild form or other. And so the, the, the interested to investigate how these um, different expressions of wanting, of greed and so desire and so forth manifest, or how these different forms of aversion, um, resistance and so forth manifest, and maybe we can even find out uh, what delusion actually means for us. What we can't see or we don't want to see, we can't accept to see. We just want to turn a blind eye, we want to distract ourselves. We, we don't really want to know uh, what our particular um, mental, emotional setup is. So then, of course, if you're interested in liberation, in freedom, in freeing the mind from egoic, uh, in the egoic um, impulses, in selfishness, and so forth, then you have to ask questions. Well, how does it come about? What are the conditions that this very strong sense of self, first of all, manifests, and what's even stronger in selfishness, the heart gets even more tight. It gets narrower and narrower and narrower. So selfishness in its extreme form is a heart that's become so tight and so narrow you can't see anything else. You can't see another person, feel another person. You can just be concerned about this little one. And so the direction you want to take is you want to investigate what is what is contributes to this impression that things tend to contract. I become more and more narrow in myself, my heart clenches together. And what happens with the opposite direction? Right? If, if I open up, so if I use compassion here, use kindness and so forth, it goes in the opposite way. Right? If I renounce selfishness, egoic 
impulses, it goes the other way. Oh, it feels much better to be like that, be open and receptive. Have, you know, a lot of time and space for concerns of other people. Um, in fact, we find that more and more uh, the, con the concerns of other people become important for us rather than the eternal circumambulation about around the little self, the little me, the little mind. Of course, it's up to us, isn't it? How long we want to do the circumambulation around the me and mind and egoic entity. And that's why, of course, an important recognition is that doing this actually is unpleasant, it's painful, it doesn't feel good. If we are honest and looking squarely at this process, we see this doesn't do me any good, it doesn't do my friends any good, my spouses, nobody, not the, also the world is not served by it. So then, the other direction, we can acknowledge for ourselves we, the proof at the end of the day is always with ourselves. Nobody else can tell us. Not waiting for someone else to tell us, oh, you're so selfless and so altruistic. You're such a wonderful person. We're not waiting for that. For the outside recognition. It's not necessary. It might happen, but it doesn't have to happen. The most important thing is that we acknowledge the movement in which, which direction our heart moves. Does it move this way? getting narrower and more contracted, or does it move in this way? And gets more open, accepting, receptive, kind, loving, and so forth. So this is this is basically the choice we have in our life. And many of the recommendations we have in the Buddhist heart training or mind training, giving us the resources, the equipment, the tools, you could say, to bring this about. Because we have to it's a it's a process, of course. It doesn't happen with a snap of a finger like this. That's why we call in Buddhist meditation also cultivation or development. In fact, that's the if we're going back to the language, the Buddhist language, the word for meditation is bhavana, and bhavana means to cultivate, to develop. We're in the process of developing our inner potential. Really, we all have the potential. The human heart, any human heart, even of the most horrible person who has done incredible crimes has still the potential to awaken. Even though, of course, it has been maybe buried under huge boulders and huge landslides of negativity, but still the core, the, the potential to awaken the heart, to lead the heart to purity, to these wonderful uh, expressions of love and kindness and selflessness, it's all there. If it wouldn't be there, we wouldn't really have to talk about it. But even the Buddha himself um, didn't didn't say, you know, that he was a kind of a special in that sense that only him, he was the one in you know every five thousand years or what in human history who can realize that. No, that every one of us, each and every one of us, has the potential to awaken. We just have to, you know, embark on the task. It's up to us. Nobody else can do it for us. Even if we meet the most enlightened masters, 
invite them to our house, give them a cup of tea and have long conversations. That might be very inspiring, but it will not do, they will not do the job for us. We have to, we have to do it ourselves. So we are asked, okay, what can we do? What is possible? When shall we start? Tomorrow? Next week? After, you know, I've changed job, after I finish school or my studies or so, or after I have more time, when I have more time, I have not so much time now in my life, I'm so busy. This is the common excuse our teacher, Chan Shah, used to get in Thailand. People always say, yeah, I have so much time for meditation. And he would then retort, do you have enough time to breathe? Do you have enough time to breathe? <laughs> when you have enough time to breathe, then, of course, this was an indication if you can attend to the breath, and at that moment, at least, you are mindful, huh? you're, you're right there, you're connected. So in that we can do in any situation. It doesn't have to necessarily be always the breath. It can also be, you know, my compulsive thinking patterns or the feelings and emotions I have at this moment. We don't have to wait for a special situation or to arise in our lives to to be able to apply it. But then at the end of the day, maybe, when we, when we are at home and we have a quiet moment, then of course we can sit down and we're encouraged to do that. To sit and walk mindfully, practice formally, to really then attend very carefully and consciously to our inner processes. Because admittedly, it is easier that way, isn't it? Then when you, you know, five children are pulling on on your, on your skirt and so forth. <laughs> and you have a myriad things to do, it's very difficult to keep track of what's actually happening. So, um, I thought I want to give enough time for that we can maybe engage a little bit. So I think I'll stop there.